This is CliffCentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on CliffCentral.com. Zootamas Fall, bringing long weekend vibes to the Daily Maverick Show. This Tuesday, as per usual, we'll be with you for the next hour. Uh, Greg, I want your opinion on this. If we chant that song, are we compromising our journalistic integrity? It's so catchy, so it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard not to. You, you just even I'm sure A and C supporters will just find themselves, you know, dancing along. Just on the look. Before, yeah. <laughs> so they're small and then a skeleton. Um. Okay, let's do this. I think it's not, uh, uh, it, it, I don't think it will compromise our integrity. I think it will actually work to protect the sovereignty and integrity of the state. Jesus, that's powerful. Yeah. <laughs> that's really powerful. Just tweet that, Greg. I don't even, I'm not even sure what it means. Just tweet it. A couple of voices I haven't actually introduced. My co-host, as per usual, Greg Nicholson. Good to be here. Daily Maverick Associate Editor and Jenny Munisami. Hello, Kingsley. I'm a bit disappointed, Anjani. I thought you'd be take the week off, be somewhere on the beach, somewhere in Mozambique. I wish. I, w- I can't wait to be unzuptad if that's <laughs> the thing. <laughs> and I'm assuming everybody listening in is also stuck in the office, <laughs> not in a bikini on the beach, just surrounded with, you know, people from accounting and Maybe HR. And just we we live for the day, uh, you know, <laughs> where the beach would uh, be the place to be. Where we wouldn't be monkeys on the beach either. <laughs> Jesus, okay, this is just like getting wild. We've got our pomegranate, official fruit of the Daily Maverick show, and it's time to get into it. Okay, I mean, the past couple of weeks have just really been crazy, not even to mention the past couple of months. I mean, going back to what Ranjani told us is called 912 and the shuffle of the finance minister position, we saw the effect of that on the RAND. And then in the, in the more recent weeks, we've heard the... The, the coming out or comings out of, of, of different people who are bringing up instances where they've been offered positions by the Gupta family, which is really just adding to the fire of this idea of state capture or, or, or the president being a puppet and stuff like that. And then we had the, you know, the no confidence motion in parliament, which is, I suppose, not, not a big event because it happens a couple times a year, you know, like clockwork. We had the NEC meeting over the weekend that Ranjana, you covered quite closely. And then we have, or we're hearing this sort of what's looking like a split in the tripartite alliance, or at the very least on the SACP, the Communist Party being quite vocal about these, these allegations of state capture or presidential capture that's been, that's been coming out. So Ranjani, the more I, the more I look at this and the more we read and hear more and more allegations and more and more confessions of people who've been in sort of compromised positions, I can't help but wonder how on earth did we get here? I mean, things like this at this magnitude, um, that don't happen overnight, and I and, and I'm forced to think that this really took a long time to build up. Um, so firstly, I'd love if we could you know, almost go back as far back as the arms deal and allegations that were being uh, sort of said to have happened in the in the late 90s. And I'm and I'm curious to hear from you what you think of the allegations of President Zuma and his relationship with Shabir Sheikh and so on, and that being almost the first instance of the president's almost corruptibility at that time, or alleged corruptibility. Okay, so when the NC was unbanned, um, I think there were many, many people who were romantic about the legion of of NC leaders, especially in the senior in senior levels of uh, of the NC, and um, you know. People were, 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 would hero worship them. They would think, they would think that, you know, they were in a league of their own. Mm. Um, 
And I think President Jacob Zuma was amongst those who was hero worshipped to a large extent. Um, you know, the, he was also the head of the, of NC intelligence. Mm. Um, and so he, there was a, an aura about him and the role he played and how he man, you know, he's, he's, he served 10 years on Robben Island. So he's part of the Robben Island elite. Um, and then he was in exile. He was in the, um, NC, uh, uh in NC intelligence. So, you know, People treated him as quite extraordinary, uh, from say other people like the soldiers, um, you know, who were in the neighboring countries. Uh, so he, he had, uh, you know, people have treated him differently from that time. Um, now when he was in KwaZulu Natal, what also built towards that image was that he played a key role in the cessation of violence, the peace deal with the Incasa Freedom Party. Mm. So he's largely, although there were other leaders who were involved with that, he's largely credited for um, the ending of uh, a 15-year um, civil war with the IFP, which led to... You know, there's no way of knowing how many people died exactly, but it's estimated to be the minimum to be about 15,000 people during that time. Mm. Um, and then also there were deaths you, you know, in, in, uh, how, uh, in Gauteng, what was then, uh, the Val Triangle. Mm. So, you know, there was a lot of instability in the country and mm. he's credited with ending that bloodshed, um, and ending that period of violence because of the way he was able to negotiate a peace pact to the IFP. Okay. So I think that all led to him building the kind of personality he is where he has a larger than life image mm. uh, in the mm. ANC. You, you know, and something that not many people will remember is that Jacob Zuma is the only person who was the ANC um, gave him special dispensation to serve in a national leadership position and provincial leadership leadership position simultaneously. Wow. This has never happened. Okay. He served as national chairperson of the ANC as well as provincial chairperson in KwaZulu Natal. So, you know, he, the, everybody always made uh, special allowances mm. for Jacob Zuma. Mm. Mm. Uh, so he then uh, b- became elected as uh, as deputy president uh, of the ANC in uh, in the ANC's Mafikeng conference in 1997. Mm. But he wasn't supposed to become the deputy president of the country. Okay. Uh, the, what happened then was that Nelson Mandela wanted... The deputy president, uh, so Thabo Mbeki was president. Nelson Mandela thought that they would offer the position to uh, the Inkasa Freedom Party president, Mangasu Tubutilezi. Mm-hmm. He declined that because he did not want to do a deal with the ANC in KwaZulu-Natal to trade off leadership of KwaZulu-Natal for the deputy Whoa. president position. So by default, Jacob Zuma became deputy president of the country. I don't think he was Thabo Mbeki's first choice. So that's how he became, uh, you know, I think luck has always been on Jacob Zuma's side. But when he became deputy president, uh, he was heavily indebted. He had uh, an extraordinarily large family to okay. take care of. He never really had a job because he had always been doing service to the country Absolutely. via the ANC. Yeah. So, you know, he never had a source of income. And that is why this relationship developed between him and Shabir Sheikh, mm. where Shabir Sheikh became known as a financial advisor. But what he was doing he was he, he was giving him money in order to pay his debts, yeah. especially to like to do things like send his children to school and the upkeep of his Nkandla home. And that's how that relationship developed. 
What happened though is that the the the, the arms uh, deal came up, mm. and um, you know the, we will never quite know the full extent mm. of what happened and who was involved in what corruption around the arms deal. Um, but what happened was that Shabir Sheikh. Uh, according to the trial records now we can tell, I tried to use his proximity to Jacob Zuma to be able to secure contracts or subcontracts out of the arms deal. The question has always been is what role did Jacob Zuma have in that? So people were able to excuse that he was taking money from Shabir Sheikh because of his friendship and comradeship mm-hmm. with, the, with the Sheikh family. Mm-hmm. The question was what did he do in return? Um, you know, for, for Shabir Sheikh giving him that money. So, I mean, the, the NC, many people and the, and the alliance stood behind him because they knew that, you know, he, he, he couldn't pay his, his debts and he, he openly acknowledged that and that he shouldn't be punished for that. But now when you look back and you look at the kinds of things going, there are even more questions about his conduct and what he, how he allowed his name to be used. I think, um, you know, what, whatever happened with Shabir Sheikh was really a tip of the iceberg in, in terms of what has happened now. What the, the big questions now that we need to ask is what is he getting in return? And why is he so beholden to this Gupta family? Why can he not detach from them? Why can't he disown them? Um, and it, it all goes down to this relationship he has with his funders. And whether he's able to sell his name and his integrity mm. and his reputation mm. for people who give him money. Mm. I mean, just you describing the, the, the history briefly is just the, the, the parallels are just, <laughs> they're just right there. And I, and I, I think it's really important to take note of that, that feeling of you describing as almost a celebrity within the NDC from the work he was doing and precedent being bypassed to, to, you know, to his benefit. And you mm-hmm. mentioned sitting on, on the national and provincial, provincial, sorry, levels at the same time. And and just looking now when we see a Jacob Zuma who seems almost untouchable, if I'm allowed to say, and seems to be able to go through scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal and still seems to be still politically intact and still have the political capital to, you know, continue as mm. president. And I'm and I wonder how looking back also into history, how how this happened. And when Greg and I were preparing the show, we were wondering about the this sort of simultaneous coming together of of not only the rape case but the the corruption charges that were laid against him um and then him seeming to be uh to be targeted or seeming to be the victim um in the coming together of all this and also his then sort of sort of fight with not fight but sort of mm. um confrontation with Tabombeki. so i'm I'm curious how and these are really you know, sort of muddy question but how do you think these things sort of came together to allow jacob zuma to have this level of allegiance towards him this level of almost untouchability this level of political capital where did that come from okay you know there, there's there's so many um contributing factors yeah. um you know jacob zuma i think initially in early 2000 mm. i think he was quite content to be, be to serve in whatever position he wanted okay. to, to serve in the okay. state, um, as long as he was comfortable, and it, it, there was still, you know, the time where there was there was a romance around the ANC, mm-hmm. and um, I think it was still, uh, you know, only the early years of government, and um, he seemed quite content. The thing that where I think things went horribly wrong mm. is when um, this allegation of a plot against. 
former president Thabo Mbeki. Yeah. Um, and th- you must remember that, um, uh, uh, Tokyo Sehwale, Matthew Sposa and Cyril Ramaphosa at the time were accused of plotting to overthrow, uh, former president mm. Mbeki. Mm. The person who wasn't mentioned publicly, but was a factor in that whole thing was president Zuma. And I think that the bizarre thing at that time was when President Zuma then issued a statement saying, I am not interested in taking over the position of state president. I don't want to be president. Mm. Now, how do you deny something you're not accused of? The undertone there, there was already a low-level battle between him and President Mbeki. Mm. President Mbeki was afraid that Jacob Zuma would take over the ANC and take over the country. And at that time, former President Mbeki was in in a battle already with the left and with other sections of society over AIDS, over the arms deal, over Zimbabwe, over the abuse of state institutions. So he, he was already in, in a massive battle. He saw President Zuma being the person who was the biggest threat to his presidency. What happened after that then was the investigation into the Sheikh trial. Uh, and Shabir Sheikh was tried, was put on trial. President Zuma was initially not tried. Uh, he was not put, uh, charged, but then later on was charged after the outcome of the of the Sheikh trial, and then he was fired by President Mbeki. So you know that all led to him being perceived as a victim, mm. um, and that the, the, the state resources were being, state institutions were being used against him because there was this parallel thing of the of the power struggle between him and and Mbeki. So people never really believed in the integrity of that investigation of the corruption investigation against him and then to compound matters he was charged for rape he was acquitted of rape and I think through that rape trial, um, you know, he, he developed that cult status. I remember outside court, there yes. were, um, uh, you know, posters of him, uh, being, uh, or, or, or pictures of him nailed to the cross. So people were likening him to Jesus yeah. at that time. Um, and he developed the cult status, but he was also the rallying figure. Um, you know, there, there was a coalition of the wounded. People who, who had all, uh, been in this battle with mm. Mbeki and lost mm. Mm. would then coalesced around Zuma. Um, so Kosatu, the NCU, Youth League, the SACP, um, you know, um, and uh, even in provincial levels, people all then started to throw their weight behind Jacob Zuma. And that all then led to the the build up to the Polokwane conference. And, um, and, uh, you know, it was, I mean, that Polokwane conference was extremely tense. It went down to the wire and um, the difference in votes was not a lot. Um, And that eventually led to the breakaway of COPE. Um, uh, you know, when after, after Mbeki was, was then recalled. So, you know, the NC has been going through a whole lot of turmoil, um, for over these past few years, but all of those things contributed to this extraordinary status that Zuma now has. Ranjini, I think many of our listeners and Daily Maverick readers, uh, would have read about your involvement, uh, working with Jacob Zuma back during his, um, with running the, the Friends of Zuma website. And I find it interesting when we look at these, Often, often we talk about these events, uh, while President Zuma, back then just Zuma, was, um, seen as being persecuted and also sort of seen as the best alternative to Tabo and Becky or some, something everybody could rally around just as an alternative. But we sort of talk about it like he, the president wasn't, or Zuma wasn't an active player in these things. Was the president at the time, was Zuma conscious? about building support through these circumstances that he fell into? Did he actively 
help build up this cult, cult sort of status? As I say, initially, I don't think he had desires on the presidency. So until this investigation picked up steam against him, the corruption investigation, and I remember very clearly when I was at the Sunday Times, um, and you know he, uh, the then um, National Director of Public Prosecutions, Bulilani Nguka, then said there is a prima facie case against the deputy president, but we are not charging him. Now, if you if you think about things, if you say somebody that there's a strong case against somebody, but we're not charging him, you're hanging him out to dry in the court of public opinion. You either charge somebody, especially if you're the national director of public prosecutions, you either charge somebody or you say we don't have enough evidence to charge. You don't say we have the evidence, but we're not charging him. Mm-hmm. And that is what you know, contributed to people saying that, but you know, the, the state agencies are, are, are persecuting him. There is something, there's a, there's a political conspiracy against him. And that's what built. And I think, you know, around the time when, when I got involved, that was, uh, uh, around the, the rape trial. Um, and I remember speaking to Jacob Zuma at that time and he was, he was convinced that, um, you know that there the, the was a whole range of um, agencies in the state that were you know trying to send him to jail for things they had not done, um, and because of that, you know, because if somebody says I have not done this, I have not raped anybody, um, I took money from Shabir because I didn't have money. Yeah. What do you say then? Do you say, well, sorry for you, uh, you know, well, there's nothing I can do. So, um, and, and th- that's what happened. That's the message he gave out to the SACP, the NC Youth League, sections of the NC, COSATU. And that is why all those organizations rallied behind mm-hmm. him. It was all those organizations, by the way, that set up the Friends of Jacob Zuma. Mm-hmm. So I was then acting as a webmaster for that, the website, you know, and all it did was pledges of support mm-hmm. and fi- fin- uh, financial support towards the trials. Um, but eventually, you know, that this whole campaign around him and because he maintained his innocence and he maintained his victimhood, that then morphed. I think there was a change in him. There was a change in the campaign during that period. It then morphed into a campaign for power mm-hmm. ahead of the Polokwane conference. Which I think is fascinating because that with, with this campaign sort of coalescing, yes. there is this broad developing support behind him. Yes. And at the same time, I think one, one thing that's important to remember today is the perception of state, uh, state agencies. Yes. Being used for factional battles. Yes. Because you, the, I mean, there was this intense war going on behind the scenes, just like there is now between things like crime intelligence, the National Prosecuting, mm. Prosecuting Authority, the Scorpions. So, you know, it, it was, there was a massive buildup and, and the situ, the situation was very much the way it is now, where people can't make head or tail, uh, they, they, they battle to believe in the integrity of state institutions because they are heavily involved in power battles in the NC. I mean, I'm just, I'm just really fascinated about how this comes together. And, and Jenny, if I'm not wrong, you are at Polokwane, and so this, yes, this all come together. So I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious as to how you saw sort of different parties and loyalties and allegiances at Polokwane and, and how and whether that you think, whether you think that sort of laid the foundation for the factionalism that we now see today in the ANC. That's quite, 
it seems almost quite open and almost accepted that people will have different loyalties and people will have different allegiances and it's just how business is done. Yes, and, you and see what Polokwane yeah, did yeah. was introduce the, the, the thing of slates. What do you mean by Slate? Okay, uh, Slate is basically the top six of the ANC. Um, So if we had six people run against six people, so it was six people in the Mbeki camp Mm. run against six Mm. people in the Zuma Mm. camp. Okay. So that... So running on tickets. Yes. So they they basically was a a deep dividing line um, in in the ANC. And what happened is that with the NEC as well, people voted according to lists based on this this Mm. camp warfare. So And then you saw it even more defined in 2012 at the Mangaung conference where, you know, at least with Polokwane, you had people from both camps still featuring in the NEC. So there was a mix post-Polokwane. But Mangaung... The reason why we have the NEC compilation we have now yeah. is because people in uh, who supported uh, Khalima Motlante were basically kicked out altogether. Um, and you just had people, even if, you know, nobody had heard of them, uh, they were very low-flying people in the ANC, they made it onto the National Executive Committee. So this is the, pro- the that Mangawung deepened the divides that started in Polokwane. Did, uh, well, one of the things that people criticize President Zuma of and the current ANC of is this supposed lack of accountability, both within the ANC and, and within sort of ANC government ministers and the state institutions. Was there a concerted effort by the president and, and his close allies to, to purge the opposition factions and, and set allies? Into key positions that wouldn't hold them accountable. You mean after Mangaung or Polokwane? Well, after Polokwane, what happened was that eight months after Polokwane, President Mbeki was recalled, and then Cope left. So people left the ANC. Um, people left government as well. You must know, cabinet ministers resigned. Uh, the deputy president resigned at that time with Mbeki. So there was a deluge out of the ANC at that time. So that. Uh, you know, the clear, uh, purging process happened, uh, on its own because President Becky was recalled. And so, uh, President Zuma, when he became president in 2009, then had a smaller po- pool of people from, to choose from. So he tended to choose people that were in his camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, in the ANC and in government from 2009, it was people largely in the Zuma camp that were left. There were just, you know, one or two people who stayed on, um, thereafter, um, and, and mo- most others left with COPE. And then after the, after two, the 2009 elections, that's when the warfare in the, the Zuma camp then started. They started turning on each other. Okay, I think before we go into the break, can you just give us a bit of a, a scene, Ranjini? And we know we're forcing you to talk a lot, <laughs> but, but paint a little bit of a scene after, after that, the Polokwane conference, the 2009 elections, and then comes Mangawong. So after the ANC's national elective conference in Mangawong, what the sort of state of, I don't know how to say, it, but I guess accountability in government with Zuma's allies and critics would say cronies yes. set up in key, key appointments, where where he and other 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 allies would be let off the hook. Okay, so th- there's there's two two ways that that the president could could and should be held accountable. One is uh, by parliament uh, in terms of which which um, acts as a watchdog over the state, and then in the ANC 
the NEC acts as um, or, or runs the NC in between national conferences. Okay, so the, so there's two parallel things. The the executive is is held account by Parliament and uh, and ultimately by the judiciary. Mm. So um, what happened is that uh, the the if you look at the 2014 uh, election list, you know it was also very much made up of people in the the that were elected into the national executive committee uh, in in. Um, uh, 2012 in Mangawung. Um, and so they're all allies of the president. So that is why parliament became a, you know, quite toothless. Particularly the ANC contingent in parliament became quite toothless because it's, it's difficult to hold him to, to account, uh, with, the, uh, you know, 249 people out of 400, uh, make, uh, being ANC MPs in parliament. Um, and then in the national executive committee is even worse because those people are all hoping for senior positions. The president is in, he has a prerogative to appoint ministers and deputy ministers. He took it up to 75. So those people are large, largely derived from the National Executive Committee. So there's no way, you know, they are going to be standing up against him when they know he's the person who, who hires and fires them. Mm. Um, and then he also appoints premiers. So those people are then in, cho- in charge of the dynamics in the provinces. And even when it comes to mayors, you know, he's... Uh, so you'll find that right down the chain um, in the ANC, people are generally unwilling to stand up and to hold the president accountable as he should be. But just, just again, just before we're about to go into a break, just very quickly, Ranjini, how would that be different from Dabo Mbeki or, say, Nelson Mandela's government, where they also have the power to appoint everybody throughout that process? Uh, yeah, I think with with Mandela's government at the time, uh, you know, the, the NC was settling into government, but you mm. also had people who were extremely robust. You had the elders, so people who are not... Uh, even though Mandela was Mandela, um, you still had people who were also themselves quite senior in the ANC, uh, who had worked under our tambo. Um, and so they were, you know, you, uh, Man- uh, Nelson Mandela was quite challenged during his presidency. I think the atmosphere within the ANC was a lot more dynamic and robust at that time. I think where it started changing was under Tabo Mbeki. Um, and that is why I think the AIDS crisis unfolded the way it, dis- it did, because a lot of people were scared to speak out and those who were who did speak out were you had their heads chopped off or um you know uh, were shouted down and we all know now about the incident when nelson mandela went to the anc nec to challenge them on the aids issue mm-hmm. and you people attacked him so there's always that danger and i think that that's what started to fester in the anc under mbeki but even now you have one or two people who are still brave enough to speak we know for example about paul mashatile and he spoke out in Kandla at the Alliance Summit and at the NEC. And him, uh, um, you know, we, we know now that he, he was also attacked for doing that, for saying, why are you speaking out on this? And, or, you know, what, what, uh, we need, basically the line was that they need to defend the president and that he shouldn't pay back the money. And ultimately it came back to bite him just in, way, in the same way the, the AIDS crisis is still, um, you know, hurting Becky's legacy. Okay, as Greg has said three or four times, we're going into a break. Uh, we'll be right back after this. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. 
Good afternoon. It's just after 1.30 and you're back live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We spent the sort of first half of the show really just digging into to how did we get here. I mean, we're seeing a lot of, you know, media coverage, news coverage, tweets and so on, talking about state capture and South Africa has been sold to Saxon Old and all these other things. But the big question is like, how did this happen and how does... How does people sort of infiltrating, you know, our country at such a high level? How, how long does it take for this to happen, and what what was the build up for this? So Ranjani Munusami, who's with me, spent sort of a great a great deal of time. Thank you, Ranjani, <laughs> really walking <laughs> us through lots of details. And thankfully, she was she was really covering you know politics quite closely as far back as Polo Kwan and so on. So some really great background. Now, Ranjani, a lot of people want us to jump to the current. We've got Kodua on, on WeChat asking, you know, what do you think of Jacob Zuma's reply when he was asked about the Guptas? And people are really itching for the, for the more up-to-date stuff. So, Ranjani, you were at the, 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 conf- the, post, the press conference post the NEC meeting that we saw. And I'm curious as to the atmosphere there, the statement that was read, and, and what your reading is, is into this, because I mean, based on just our brief conversation, you're, you're reading this a bit differently from, from some of the other, some of the other people covering it. So I'm really curious for you to just run us through what, what happened. Okay. So I wasn't at the, at the press briefing. Mm. I was watching it okay. because it ran four hours, uh, over time, um, over a long weekend. Yeah. So, you know, my, my tolerance threshold for sitting around and waiting has been diminished, but, um, Yes, you see, um, I think the whole country mm. was, was waiting to see what the NC was going to say. Absolutely. And a lot of people were primed to hear the word recall. Absolutely. That was never going to happen. President Becky, I mean, President, uh, Zuma could never have been recalled at this meeting. There was, the NC did not have the case in front of him okay. to be able to make that decision. Okay, so it just simply was just never going to happen. Yes. What it, what it, the outcome of that, A, that NEC basically is that it wants to gather all the information mm. and perhaps prepare that case. We don't know what actions it's going to take, but I think that, you know, the, the, the takeaway line for a lot of people out of that, um, media briefing was mm. a statement by Mantashe, which uh, basically saying, um, uh, you know, that the the NC d- d- uh, affirms or confirms its full confidence in our president. And, you know, that's what made the headlines and Twitter was ablaze with that. Oh, absolutely. But I think that, you know, when, when you're listening to things like that, it's difficult to then, you know, perceive the context uh, and the exact phrasing of what was said. But you see what he, what the line actually was, mm. was that the appointment of ministers and deputy ministers is the sole prerogative of the president of the republic in line with the constitution then it says to this end the ANC continues to confirm its full confidence in our president so it's not an unqualified statement of support Mm. in the president which a lot of people thought it was it's not that they're saying that the appointments when it comes to the appointments of ministers and deputy ministers on that part, as he is assigned by the constitution, the ANC has confidence that he can still carry out that task. Mm. So it's a very deliberate statement that, and you know, um, I mean, uh, Greg will know that we've been to tons of ANC conferences. Mm. Yeah. When the ANC does not want to deal with an issue, it just brushes over it. In the way it did with, for example, when you think about the Marikana issue, the yeah. outcome of the Marikana Commission, there was like one line, you know, that we, we, uh, we note the outcome or something like that. Um, when it came to Operation Fiala, for example, when we tried to question it, mm. I got bludgeoned uh, by Gwede Mantashe for saying, but what exactly, you know, how do people feel about it? Yeah. And he said, don't dictate how we supposed, what we supposed to say. 
This was 300 words on the Gupta issue, which started with the line that says the ANC-NEC had frank and robust discussions. That's not normal language for the ANC. They, they go on to say that um, the NEC expressed its utmost disgust at the arrogance, disrespect and reckless journalism of the New Age and NN7. That is unheard of in the ANC. They don't use words like that. And I think, interestingly, the media's reaction, or, or a large part of the mm. media's reaction, um, seem to seem to sort of play off these 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 sort of claims from the NEC because Zuma wasn't recalled or something yes. like that. It seems that there's these ridiculous sort of expectations, yes, exactly, um, or People... unrealistic expectations of the NEC, and then they overlook just how much um, how how big this this stuff is. Yes, I mean the, everyone was looking at this NEC through the prism of the recall. That, mm. that was the wrong way to approach it. The way to approach it was to see what exactly they say about uh, you know the the Gupta family uh, in terms of appointments and state capture, and secondly in terms of how that meeting, the agenda of that meeting was being dictated to by the Gupta family via their media houses. Um, because I think, you know, they were stepping up their ante before that meeting. Mm. They actually had the nerve to go and drop off a pile of New Age newspapers at the NEC. Um, that's how much they wanted to influence <laughs> the NEC. Like, I, if you can't see my eyes, just my jaw <laughs> dropped. I didn't know about this. Yes. incredible. Uh, Juanita Hunter from yes. the Sunday Times actually took a picture of that pile of newspapers there. I mean, those guys are so brazen and in I terms you, of I what... I saw you tweet the link with the rebels versus the generals. Yes, exactly. And I was you know, just like, that, what is happening here? That's what what is it, this? it was setting it up as if it was, you know, like a, like a war zone. Um, you know, yeah, the, with the kind of language being used. And then they were presenting President Zuma as a victim. You know, that there were just this small group of defenders, you know, other defenders that were out there, you know, to protect our poor president who was being slaughtered here. You know, that's how these newspapers were presenting it. And I think that is what enraged people Mm. like the Secretary General and that is why that language is used. So clearly the, the National Executive Committee didn't opt to recall Jacob Zuma, which was never going to do. But it did have quite a strongly worded statement um, on the uh, on the issue of state capture and the Gupta family. But what's going to happen now? Yes, this is a big thing. I think people need to to read between the lines of this statement. The the NEC has mandated the national officials, so the six of top six officials. Is that including the president? Including the president yeah. plus the national working committee okay. to deal with this matter. It's unprecedented. You don't deal with any or with, I mean, the whole National Working Committee plus the top six officials. If you think about it, when Kosatu was falling to pieces, they assigned a task team led by the deputy president. Mm. Not even the collapse of Kosatu warranted an investigation of this size. Um, so it's a massive investigation and they are calling on people to come forward with allegations to the office of the Secretary General. That also is significant. You must know that the NC has a thing called the Integrity Commission of Elders. Mm, I think we've talked about it before. Yes. So, you know, that's where they want to, if you have, you know, any complaints or if anybody's compromised the integrity of the NC, go there. They could have shoved this issue off to the elders and said, you know, uh, that was a way, would have been a way of palming it Mm. off. They didn't do that. They said the person who has been the most outspoken on this Gupta issue, who called them the mafia, that person is in, is in charge, now in charge of channeling the complaints to the ANC. That is extremely significant. That is why I believe that the statement is harder than most people think that it is. I mean, that's interesting. I, I think a lot of people perceived it as 
the same people who are alleged, allegedly sort of part of the state capture are, are saying, no, we'll police ourselves and seeing that as a cop. No, I no, find no. It interesting how you're seeing that as the opposite. Yes. And you must yeah. know also part of yeah. uh, the, the, uh, what, uh, Alex Gwede Mantashe said at the press conference, he had a strong reprimand against, uh, the NC Youth League president yeah. and the Women's League president who were basically threatening people yeah. who wanted to speak out. He called them ill-disciplined. Mm-hmm. So we don't know where that's going. If they if they are ill-disciplined, they could possibly uh, be a dis- disciplinary action against them. Who knows? But he's reprimanding them. And also he came out in support of Mkabisi Jonas who's speaking out. Mm-hmm. He's called on Teba Maseko, the former cabinet spokesman, to come forward to the ANC and tell them what happened um, and inviting everybody else. There was also a statement of support for Praveen Gordon in the statement, which was extremely significant. So, you know, people shouldn't read things at face value just because you see a line in the statement saying full confidence in the president don't just take it down to the lowest denominator i'm interested in the question as to why now why why now are we is is it because the the allegations and and, and the information that's emerged that the gupta family are offering a key appointments is just so huge that a fair portion of the NEC and the Secretary General has to take this thing seriously? Or, th- or, or is it because there are other factors at play? No, I think that the firing of Nklantla Nene, I think society has been, um, you know, it, it, very uncomfortable with that, with the, with the firing of Nene. And I think the revelation by Mkabisi Jonas about the Gupta family has, has led to this issue exploding in the public mm-hmm. because now this is a real menace. In our society, um, and it's it's not just you know people will have the ear of the president who can whisper to him uh, whenever they want to. It's now I think you know people who are in the position to commandeer control of the state, mm-hmm. and now it's a real threat to the state and to the integrity of the NC. And I think the NC cannot dodge the issue any longer. It also seems that we spoke before of of allegations um, of influence and corruptibility of President Jacob Zuma, you know, from way back to the arms deal. It seems that at the moment, as as people have been more and more concerned about perceived allegations of corruptions and his and his willingness to open himself up to influence dur- during his presidency, it almost seems like there's been a tipping point or a tidal wave. While while for a long time people have been perhaps unhappy or questioning as to what's going on with, you know, deals here and deals there. And the Gupta family for a long time has been, has, there's been allegations against them. It's almost after the Nklantla Nene firing that people are saying, no, this is too much now. It's, there's too much out in the public and the, the influence or the alleged influence of this family and, and all sorts of other shit going on has just gotten too far. I think the NC only has itself to blame because they have known about this issue for years. Yeah. Um, you know, this has been going on, uh, from, from 2010, 2011. They, the NC became aware of it and it didn't act. And I think because of the repercussions from the Nene firing, um, and because it's, uh, you know, the issue is now there's a lot of people uh, in the NC speaking out. The SACP is calling for a judicial commission of inquiry. Um, the foundations of the elders. So, or Tambo, um, Nelson Mandela and Amit Katrada foundations have spoken out. You don't ignore those people. I've just seen a statement saying the NC is actually going to meet the three foundations. Wow. So they cannot afford to to ignore these allegations any longer. On the line, we've got uh, Marianne Merton, uh, the Daily Mavericks parliamentary correspondent. Marianne, how are you doing? We are all good down here in Cape Town. <laughs> 
So today we're talking about sort of state capture and how the hell we got to this point. And, and just want to start with you and ask you sort of around parliament, have you seen any sort of shift in change amongst people's sort of particularly ANC politicians, but also the opposition, their, their perceptions of the president and, and sort of the different ANC factions? And also, also the Guptas. I know Parliament's in recess, but are we seeing sort of any change down there? I think, I think maybe, maybe the best way to start off on that is the presidential Q and A that we had last mm. week Thursday. It was pretty much the last sort of sitting of the house before the Easter recess, and one of the things that really kind of stuck in my mind, I thought, is that. Um, those ministers that were present in the House um, looked rather serious or glum, I think one might even be able to say. Because, of course, that Thursday Q&A session with President Zuma came literally 24 hours after the Deputy Finance Minister, Gibisi Jonas, made his public statement that, indeed, he had been offered the job of finance minister by the Gupta. Um, so certainly those 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 statements that that statement did have an effect, and you know people people looked glum um, on the ANC benches that day. Um, I thought it was remarkable. I mean, normally normally the president gets a standing ovation even before a word is uttered, and and this time round there was just very very polite applause. Mm-hmm. Now, Marianne, um, there's a lot of people talking about with all these issues going on and politics being so hectic, all the different um, allies of, of the president who have fallen by the wayside. And we saw um, ANC Chief Whip Stone Cezanne recently, recently resign, and today it was announced that Jackson Dimble, the former spokesperson of the party, uh, was appointed as the Chief Whip. Is this a whole part of sort of ANC factionalism, or, or, or what are we supposed to make of, of uh, Dimble's appointment? Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Look, um, the resignation of Stone Zizani, um, it was a surprise that it happened, when it happened, but it wasn't really a surprise. And if if that makes no sense, then, then that's a reflection of some of the Byzantine kind of behind-the-scenes maneuvering that are happening. Um, word in the parliamentary corridors for, whew, Almost a year had been that that Stone Cezanne was not happy that the job was taking a toll also on his health. Um, it, it's a it's an incredibly tricky tricky position as chief. With you sit right in the middle between you have political obligation towards the Tuli House, the ANC head office, but you also have obligations to Parliament, which is essentially a multi party institution where, you know, just because you have the numbers doesn't mean you always get your way, as, for example, it was shown when the ANC had to draw back its uh, nomination of Cecil Burgess as the new Inspector uh, Inspector General for Intelligence. So Chief Whip is an incredibly tricky position, and and that's the position that Jackson and Temple will walk in. Obviously, Mtembo is very, very senior in the ANC. He's very experienced. We forget knowing him as an ANC national spokesperson and now here as an MP in Parliament. We, we, we forget that 
that he was a politician in, in Pumalanga. He served there in the provincial government as roads and transport, MEC twice. He was also um, involved in the legislature. And I've just discovered he literally for about six months, four months, four months, also served as the speaker of the Mpumalanga legislature. So maybe with all of that background and and the fact that uh, Jackson Temple has been around for a very, very, very long time in the ANC, um, going back to 1990 when he became a spokesperson for the ANC in what was then still known as the Eastern Transvaal Mpumalanga. Um We'll see how he will manage all of that. Uh, Marianne, it's a tricky job. Uh, Marianne, but the, the position of Chief, Chief Whoop is perceived as somewhat, uh, somewhat of a poison chalice in the ANC. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have been in that position and, um, and made hasty exits from it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, think, I think Jackson Tembo is the 12th ANC Chief wow. Whip in Jeez. the last 22 years. Um, on average, it, it, it seems that ANC chief whips last about two and a half years or so. And, you know, to, to be honest, um, Joan Zizani lasted two and a half years. Um, uh, some chief whips last significantly longer. I mean, we had Mukhasa, who was basically appointed in, I think it was November 2007, and he was chief whip effectively over the end of the year recess. Mm. At the end of January, he was replaced by Natim Tetwa in 2008. And, of course, Natim Tetwa did Was it not Natim Fleko? No, no. Natim Fleko was earlier. Oh, wow. Uh, Natim Fleko was in 2002, 2004. No, but Natim Tetwa obviously went on to become a cabinet minister. And a number, a number of ANC chief whips have indeed become... Cabinet Minister mm. in Sleko, obviously now, Nadine Petwa. Um, the only ANC woman who was ANC Chief Whip ever in 22 years, uh, Mapisa Nkakula. That's fascinating. Of course, Marianne? went on to become the Defence Minister. Sorry, Marianne, we're running out of time. Mm. We're going to have to cut you cool. there. Thank you so much no. for talking to us. We're going to keep an eye on this issue. Absolutely, my pleasure. Take care. We'll speak to you soon. Cool. Oh, Greg, we're just uh, sort of last going to the last portion of the show. I'm really curious about the sort of legal implications. So a lot of people have been wondering, is there sort of anti-corruption uh, legislation or constitutional legislation that can hold either the president, perhaps the president's son, perhaps the Gupta family themselves into, you know, to account you know, on some kind of sort of sort of legal platform for for these allegations that have come out. So you've done some digging into this. What you know? What well, is no, that? just just the just the law specifically says yeah. that in terms of the the I think Prevention and Corrupt uh, Combating of Corrupt Activities Act says that if you if you have the intent to corrupt, so if you make an offer to somebody, okay. um, even if it's not accepted, so so if we look at the specific case of um OBC Jonas and it's a uh, fakey mentor, if if we, if those cases are true and the Guptas did try to offer these offer these jobs to to um these ANC MPs with with sort of attached um strings, you know, so so you know if 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 you get this job, you just have to sort of put through, push this policy. There should be that they should be um, charged with corruption, and the the Democratic Alliance and Cope have already laid charges of corruption, um, even if 
those offers were were denied. Mm. Um, and also the president's son, Durazani Zuna, who was reportedly with Jonas mm. and organized the meeting between, this is reportedly, the meeting with the Guptas and Jonas. He could also be, be charged with corruption in, in that, un, under that law. The challenge is that these, these, um, these crimes go straight to the Hawks. And the Hawks, but is, is laughing already. Yeah. If, if, if we talk about state capture, yeah. uh, Burning and Tlemeza, the, the head of the current head of the Hawks, um, has number one, been criticized as unfit for the job and dishonest and a liar. And number two, he's seen as a key ally of the president. So the, the idea that he will take these charges through, um, it seems, seems doubtful. And then there's a second problem because even if Ntlemeza has a brain aneurysm and, uh, you know, allow, uh, allows other people to, to investigate this case, when it goes, there's another hurdle to cross at the National Prosecuting Authority right. because their, their integrity is also quite compromised and they are seen to be biased. So, you know, will they actually take that case further and, and, and take it forward towards the prosecution? And I think that's, this sort of ties into the whole idea of state capture because a lot of people have been talking just about the Gupta family and their influence over the state, but it goes much further than that. I think that's just the key symbol and perhaps for the public one of the most offensive um, sort of examples that we have. But it's important to, to remember that it's about institutions being used as well across across the state's apparatus, I yes. guess. And, and I think that's why we wanted to start this show looking at Back at some of those, um, the history of of Jacob Zuma's um, factional battles with Tabo and Becky, and how the state capture um, sort of thing just, just has just, its roots there. It's it's reproducing now, but now it's intensified and just so much worse. Absolutely, I can't really put it better than that. And Jenny, in the last sort of minute and a half before we have to go, you say that the ground has shifted somewhat, and you said, I think you said the Secretary General is in for the fight of his life on this, on this I th- issue. What I do think you mean he by is. That? I mean, he, he, he's quite a resolute person. I think he is quite angered by, um, uh, all the allegations and the impact that this has had on the NEC. So I, on the ANC rather. So I think that he's quite determined to, to do a, open up a proper investigation into this matter. But the problem is that he can't act alone. Uh, he can only present the case whenever the time comes, but he can't act alone. It'll be up to the entire ANC leadership. And that is why it's important that society also keeps up the pressure to in- ensure the sovereignty of our state. Um, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But I think that on the other side, the Guptas and their allies in, the, particularly in the NEC, in the Youth League, in the Women's League, in the Premier League, I think that they're going to continue to keep up the pressure on the ANC. I think that they're going to exert enormous pressure on the Secretary General to mm. get him to back down. So I think this fight is, is going to get, I, I don't, I don't think we can even imagine how it's going to blow up from here. There you have it. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Remember to download the podcast, share it far and wide. We'll see you next week, same time. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's The Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.